Hi there, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This episode comes from a live show we did on October 23rd. Tane was away, so I took over for the hosting duties. We chatted with Lisa Bender, who is the city council president in Minneapolis, and also represents the 10th Ward. We talked about the Minneapolis 2040 plan, which is a set of guidelines the city must establish as ordered by the Metropolitan Council. The plan in its current form, which was approved by the Council on December 7th, has 14 goals and 100 policies. While the policies range from how the city works with the arts to street design, one policy has dominated the conversation. The city planned to rezone much of the city to allow the building of triplexes anywhere in the city. This proved to be incredibly contentious. We also talked about a couple of other topics, but I'll let you get to those. I hope you enjoy the show. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Moving on, so you're here to talk about something very big, something very special that's happening. Yes. Because the Minneapolis City Council decided that there wasn't enough drama going on, (laughs) and so they wanted just a big, meaty thing to bite into to get the entire city talking, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And that's the Minneapolis 2040 plan. That's right, that's right. So we made up the year 2040. It didn't exist before the Minneapolis City Council invented it. That's very (laughs) forward-thinking. Thank you. Uh, Maybe to get... uh, kind of started setting the table. Yes. I'm sure not everyone knows much about the 2040 plan. Mm-hmm. There might be someone who's never heard of it before. So could you tell us a little bit about kind of why the city sure. is doing a 2040 plan and what that means? Sure. So, hi everyone. Um, so every 10 years, every community in the Twin Cities region updates our master plans for each of our cities, and it's required. If we don't do it, it, the Metropolitan Council. Ooh. They are basically our evil overlords. Benevolent or evil, I'm not sure. Overlords. <laughs> Depends on the policy, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so if we want to get affordable housing funding and other sources of funding from the Metropolitan Council, every community in our region has to adopt a comprehensive plan or a master plan. And so um, this time we did see it as an opportunity to... Uh, either create a lot of drama or recognize that our city is growing and that we really needed to update our plans to reflect that growth. And that's new. So the last time the plan was adopted, we were in the middle of a recession. I wasn't on the council at the time, but um, so I think the last update was was a more minor one. Mm-hmm. And so this is a bigger deal, um, p- partly because of how the city is is growing now, just the reality that we have a housing shortage and um, more and more people are moving to the city, which is a great thing. It's a great community, and more people want to live here, but we don't have enough housing for the people who want to come. And so part of the big focus of the plan is how do we accommodate the growth that's coming to our city, both in housing and jobs. So I don't know how much you know about the previous plan. I'm going to ask this mm-hmm. question anyways. Sure. So uh, kind of reflected in that, because it was a recession, were things like much more sad and dire <laughs> in the plan? Like, ooh, this is not looking good. The next 20 years, <laughs> I might go to St. Paul. <laughs> no? I don't think it was quite that bad. Uh, so, um, <laughs> St. Paul is a lovely place to live. Yes. <laughs> um, it was more that, you know, this time we've had a, like over 100 public meetings, a lot of engagement. Last time there was a plan written, there were three public meetings downtown. The city council made some changes and then adopted the plan. And so the level of engagement that we're doing now is many, many multiples more. That's interesting because some people have said that it has not been very engaging. Why do you think they are saying that? Yeah, I mean, I never want to speak for anyone, but um, I think 
you know, I think rightfully people, we are proposing changes that are, feel like a big deal. And so I think people just want to make sure their voices are heard in that process. And that's a totally legitimate thing. So when I hear people saying there hasn't been enough engagement, what I think they're really saying is I don't feel like my voice is reflected in what I'm seeing yet. And so I think it's our jobs to try to really find out what people are trying to say. And I mean, some folks might just oppose what we end up you know, adopting as a council, but I think the process of having our staff give some people things to react to and to have this process over many years, actually, of engaging the community and how we want our city to grow into the future is really important and really meaningful work. So right now we have the second draft of the plan. Is that correct? That's right. The first one was introduced last March. That sounds right. I would hope I you would I trust you. <laughs> um, so we're in the second draft of the plan. That's what right. What are some of the bigger changes that have happened? Because, and I know you can't list them all off because there's 96 policies that are in the draft, all on a wide range of different things. Yes. And I was just looking at all of the markups and the changes just in the language and descriptions. Yeah. It's a lot. So what are some of the big changes that have happened? What would people notice? Yeah, so I think one thing I'll say about the plan overall is that a lot of the policy areas. So the plan covers environmental sustainability. It covers infrastructure like stormwater sewers and transportation. A lot of the things that this plan talks about in advances have been really well discussed and developed over many years. So our transportation policies would be an example of that. We adopted a complete streets policy. We have a commitment as a city to a vision zero approach to our streets, which says we've committed to eliminate traffic fatalities in our streets. Um, as a city. And so those those policies have been proposed and debated. We've had public hearings about them over the past decade. And I think there's growing support in our city for making sure that our streets are designed for all people and all users and that they're safe for everyone. So that's reflected in the plan, but it's not a new idea. And it's had a lot of public development and engagement over many years. So we're not hearing as much about that. We're hearing the most about housing. And that is because on the one side... Here in Ward 10, 80% of my constituents are renters. They rent their homes. And they're under enormous pressure as our housing market becomes tighter and tighter. We have one of the lowest rental vacancy rates in the country. So when a renter is looking for a home, they're competing with many other people for the unit. And that gives landlords a real advantage in the market. So there might be 20 people applying for one apartment building. That means they can pick and choose. So people who have any kind of um, uh, credit history issues or they've ever had an eviction filing on their record, it's becoming harder and harder to find any housing at all in the city. And that might mean that they have to do something terrible like move to St. Paul. Again, St. Paul is a lovely place to live. So, so along those lines... The, so long story short, yeah. housing is really... I mean, it's really the big issue. And then the plan does propose changes. It changes... Um, the big thing that's gotten the most attention, of course, is the idea that we would allow more housing units in every neighborhood in the city. And that originally was up to four units, the famous fourplex, um, and now has been shifted down to propose up to three units in every neighborhood in the city. And was that a compromise or were there other changes behind that? Yeah, I mean that was a I mean that was two things. It was a reaction to just the really strong reaction that people had in, in neighborhoods that um, where that would be the biggest change. I mean, here in Ward 10, you can walk around after tonight's show. I mean, we have duplexes and triplexes and apartment buildings going back 100 years. It's just the fabric of this community here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not a huge change in Ward 10. Um, but across the city, it, it gained a lot of reaction. The reality is on a 40-foot lot in Minneapolis, which is the typical size of a single family or a typical lot, 
a duplex here in Ward 10, you can't really build a four-unit building within the size that a, the building is allowed. The sort of blanket saying up to four units anywhere was really catching, you know, the larger lots, the places where you maybe could put a fourplex on a corner lot. And we have those all over the city today, too. So many people live in four-unit buildings in neighborhoods all across the city. It was just an easier way for us to have a policy level that said you could have four units, knowing that that wasn't going to apply to a lot of the lots in single-family neighborhoods. You but could, that was you getting could a little do lost housing in at the that place. level. All, all my people are from Holland, and so mm-hmm. all of those buildings are super yeah. narrow, super yeah. tall. Yeah, the stairs are terrible. <laughs> they are awful stairs. Yeah, and then you have the little crane. I'm babbling, um, <laughs> but it's that's like what our that's basically what our building code says. <laughs> so a lot of people were kind of upset by the idea of upzoning the entire city because they're very scared that the character of their neighborhood is going to change. And so let's pretend I'm scared. <laughs> that the character of my neighborhood is going to change. I'm very worried. Yes. What would you say to me? Well, I mean, like, I would be really interested to know, you know, what it is you love about your community now and what you really think would change. Is it the buildings themselves, the people in the buildings? Knowing what I know about our community here in Ward 10, um, you know, having two or three units within a building, I think, gives us a lot of diversity of housing options. It helps provide the most affordable housing in our community, which allows us to have more diversity in every way. And I think my constituents really love that and enjoy that about our community. Um, So my experience living in a neighborhood that allows more housing in the same building envelope is a a really good one. But let's say I'm from Ward 13. And I think, yeah, all the housing in Ward 10, that's great. Let's keep Ward 13 the way it is. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I mean, I represent Ward 10, uh, so I would tell you to call your council member, first of all. But I do think, I mean, in all seriousness, part of our city's history is one of really extreme segregation in housing, and it is real that we are talking about changing that pattern, and frankly, the shifts are very small. Um, we are still, in this plan, Staff, the staff proposal is still to concentrate most of the growth along transit corridors, and those are in the same neighborhoods where we've traditionally had the most dense population, density of housing, density of population, and which have been growing in the recent past. And so the overall pattern isn't really proposed to change in the comp plan, but it is a significant shift, I think, just sort of philosophically to say we want to allow some small amount of multifamily housing all across the city, irregardless of neighborhood. That's a big change. So what are some other things, now that you mention it, that the plan does to kind of address historic redlining or Mm -hmm. racial housing covenants to kind of right those wrongs? Yeah, so I think the reality is that the comprehensive plan is only one of many, many things that we would need to do to truly undo redlining or really, truly invest in building wealth in communities of color, which is one of the things that redlining did. It removed the opportunity for people of color to build wealth through housing. But so did you know, discrimination in banking, which we still see today. So does access to capital. So there's some really exciting things happening, but I don't think anyone should pretend that allowing two or three units of housing across the city is going to really truly address those racial disparities. So we're working to bring more of those 
specific commitments into the plan. So Council Vice President Jenkins and I are working to try to make those, some of these commitments around investing, for example, in alternatives to traditional banking, to open up access in communities of color to banking services. That's something that wouldn't traditionally be in our comprehensive plan, mm -hmm. but as we're trying to make commitments to opening up homeownership and wealth building, not, not always or not only through homeownership, that's a commitment that we can make at the same time. In the same way that we've really made stronger commitments to affordable housing while we're talking about allowing more housing. Um, because you, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you propose an inclusionary zoning ordinance, true. which is not part of the 2040 plan, or true. is it? I mean, so one of the things, too, about the plan is that it's, it's meant to be at a pretty high level of policy, and then it will be implemented in lots of other ways. And constituents love hearing that, and particularly if you add a lot of bureaucratic detail or technical detail, mm -hmm. <laughs> really, really starts to get people excited. Um, but <laughs> so, you know, for example, we have transportation policies in, in the 97 policies, but we'll adopt a transportation plan that has a map of our transit corridors, our protected bikeway plan. It's going to have some really exciting new commitments for pedestrian safety that aren't in our plans now. So we'll implement our transportation system through that. The zoning code will implement what buildings look like, what how the size of buildings and where they're allowed to be built. And then we'll have to do all kinds of other things to really achieve the goals of the plan, including access to capital and wealth building as another example. Do you know how the new proposal affects this specific building? Oh, yes, and I haven't... Uh, yes, this building will be torn down it's, it's, in 2036. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I believe I, I it's on page 327 do... of the plan. So currently, this building is zoned as a... This building is probably zoned C1. Ooh, close, C2. C2. Um, and yeah. it will be changed to... Transit 6 or Transit 10? Corridor 6. Corridor 6. Don't worry. I wouldn't have known any of those. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, you mentioned bulldozing and jest, but a lot yeah. of people, if you drive around town, you will see, don't bulldoze this house yeah. on many lawn signs. And in 2014, uh, there was a housing moratorium yes. on teardowns yes. to prevent... Houses that were getting torn down left and right, apparently, in southwest Minneapolis. And that was later kind of lifted. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that is a justifiable concern, that if people saw their neighbors getting their house torn down, that it could happen again? So, so there are a number of single-family homes in Minneapolis being torn down to build new single-family homes. And so in 2014, there was a six-month moratorium to make the size of new single-family homes that were allowed smaller than the ones that had been allowed previous. And, there, and that was actually the second time the city made a change to try to make these sort of whatever you want to call them, monster homes, McMansions, smaller in footprint. Um, so it is true that most of the bulldozed homes have been in those neighborhoods that are single-family neighborhoods where a single-family home is being torn down for a new single-family home. So this change, one of the things I think is exciting about the comprehensive plan is that as the zoning is adjusted in the future, which would have to happen, um, you could put in a second unit in that new single-family home, and it provides more flexibility. So when we legalized accessory dwelling units, or these granny flats last term... 
There was actually a lot I'm of very support. Very surprised at the applause for Granny Flats. I know. Yes, we're in Ward Ten. <laughs> um, there was actually a lot of support from seniors who were aging out of their homes and wanted more flexibility about options in their own neighborhoods. Because what? I'm sorry. What is a Granny Flat for anyone that doesn't know? Yeah, an accessory so, dwelling unit. In Minneapolis, an accessory dwelling unit means you can either build a little cottage in your backyard or you can add another unit to your home, either through an addition in the back or wherever on the side, I guess. Typically in Minneapolis, it would be in the back. Or you can turn your attic into a unit or perhaps a basement apartment. So it's a way to add another unit in your home in neighborhoods where you weren't allowed to do that. We did have to compromise, and it is only allowed in in owner-occupied homes now. So, for example, in Ward 10, that limits where it can be because 80% of the units of housing in my ward are Mm renter-occupied. So it's been a barrier to adding more needed housing in the community where, you know, one of the benefits of these smaller scale changes is that you really don't notice them when you're walking by. You you wouldn't know that there's maybe a cottage apartment unit in someone's backyard or that your neighbor has added a unit inside their home. And it's actually a preservation strategy for older buildings. So a lot of the big old houses in Ward 10 um, have been turned into duplexes or triplexes. Many of them in my ward are locally owned or owner-occupied. We have I have a lot of families that have like you know, mom is living on the ground floor and, you know, a child and family are living above. Before I had children, I don't know that that would have sounded like a good idea to me, but I actually think it would sound great now. Um, So it just adds a lot more flexibility to what people can do with their property. So we've talked a lot about housing, and I know there's probably a lot more that we could talk about, but earlier you mentioned Vision Zero. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that is and how the comprehensive plan is going to address that? Yes. So Vision Zero is a commitment that cities across the country are making, including Minneapolis, to eliminate traffic deaths in our city. And people are dying on the roads when they're walking, biking, and also in when they're driving in cars or passengers in cars. And so it's adding another layer to our complete streets policy. And that one said every time we touch a road, whether we're resurfacing it and especially if we're tearing it all up and rebuilding it, we're making it safer for all users and we're prioritizing the most vulnerable people first and that's pedestrians or people who are walking in our streets. And so many people are pedestrians at some point in their journey. So if you're taking the bus, you're walking to and from the bus stop. If you're riding your bicycle, you're often walking as part of your trip. And if you're driving, you're walking as part of your trip a lot of the time too, especially in neighborhoods like those in Ward 10. And so, and also often when we make a change to a street to make it safer for any of those user groups, it makes it safer for all users because we're slowing down traffic and we know that at higher speeds, uh, crashes are likely to, more likely to result in death. So if a person who's walking gets hit by a car that's going 40 miles per hour, they have an 80% chance of dying. But if that car was going 20 miles an hour, it's inverse. They have a you know, more significant chance of surviving that crash. So what are those changes that are proposed to make streets safer? And then, I guess, detractors would say, what are we giving up in order to make streets safer? So um, after the comprehensive plan is adopted at the end of the year, we're going to update our transportation system plan. Mm -hmm. So we already have a pedestrian plan, a bicycle plan, and we will have a transit plan. So all of those three will be updated. We already have a protected bikeway network, and we're fully funding that. So we're building 35 miles of protected bikeways that's funded in the budget. 
we don't have the same level of detail for pedestrian safety. And that's what will be new in the new transportation plan. But we are, every time we touch a road, improving it for biking and walking and for all users. Uh, but particularly with an eye of calming traffic and, and making sure that people are driving safely through intersections and through our neighborhoods. And honestly, most of the time when we look at the impact on car traffic, it's very minimal. So we're able to adjust signal times. So if you look at, you might be sitting at one red light for longer, but if you look at your trip across three miles, you know, it might add something like 30 seconds or a couple of minutes to your trip. But I think most people, when we really talk to folks about their priorities, would say that that's a trade-off that they would be willing mm -hmm. to make. Because the number one thing I hear about from my constituents, well, now I think it's housing cost, but up until very recently, it was um, traffic speeds in neighborhoods. So that's, that's the clear number two thing that we hear about is, you know, people are speeding down my street. Can I get speed bumps? Can I get a stop sign? And so we're taking a citywide look at how we can make all of our streets safer for walking and biking. Wouldn't it be easier, and this is not my opinion, but some have called for just banning cars throughout the city? I'm not... <laughs> I, I drive, so I like my yeah. car, but... I don't think we need to ban cars. I think we could just make it a lot easier and better and safer to, to walk and bike and take transit, and a lot of people already do, and many more want to. I would be in favor of year-round open streets on all of the streets. <laughs> that would be awesome. Because then you can go out, you can see a performance, yes, get a little I snack. Open, open streets is great because when we first proposed open streets, I wasn't on the council at the time, but when, when the organization I was helping volunteer with did, that was the Bicycle Coalition, and now our streets, um, there was huge pushback to the idea of closing down one street for one afternoon. People said, you know, the businesses will have a terrible impact, it, you know, how could anyone get around? Emergency services. People will die. <laughs> and we went door to door. I, I door knocked. I was pregnant with Alice. Um, we door knocked in January. We, we collected all these signatures that you used to have to get to shut down a street for any kind of event. But now everyone loves them. And even the gas stations have some of their highest sales of, of the whole year because people are stopping in and buying soda and yeah. water and gum and all the things. Um, so what, One minor thing. Do you mm -hmm. find that door knocking is easier when pregnant? <laughs> do people slam the door no. in your face as often? No, yes. <laughs> oh, they do? I, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, so everyone in the audience, uh, for the second half of the show, uh, we'll have a Q&A portion. So if there are any questions that you would like to ask, be thinking of them. Um, but to close out, now that you've kind of gone through this process somewhat, and you haven't completed it yet, yeah. what advice would you have to somebody that is working on, let's say, the 2080 plan for <laughs> Minneapolis? Well, I, you know, I tweeted that I'm going to, I'll be there heckling, the poor, I think I said the poor sap who's on the city council. From your granny flat? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you know, honestly, and I mean this sincerely, I think in some ways we've, the city has made like too big of a deal of this. Like it is a big deal. It's a really big deal. But it's one of many, many, many things that the city is working on and is really important to shaping the future of our city. And we already have a comprehensive plan. You know, there, it, it almost made it seem like it's this like big, scary new thing that we've never done before. Instead of the continuation of many, many years of public engagement and policymaking. Um, so I think just like managing expectations and making sure people really understand what it is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And I think, honestly, having more deeper conversations about race in Minneapolis is, like, the number one thing we should do for everything we do. So, um, because I think at the end of the day, um, that's what this plan is really trying to do. And I don't pretend that it's going to be the only, you know, it's absolutely, like, the very least we could do Mm -hmm. is to start to undo redlining. But if we had started to have more deep conversations early on and built some more leadership from the ground up, and frankly, really, we did. The city staff did engage specifically with cultural communities across the city, but it it was done in um, a really directed way. And I think if we could have found more ways to kind of bring that out into the public dialogue, that that would have helped. Like at an improv show. Yes, exactly. More improv. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause for Lisa Bender. Uh, just raise your hand. I will come to you. Yes, I see a question over here. Hi, Lisa. Hi. You um, hand the microphone to a reporter for the first question. Uh, <laughs> a recovering reporter. Yeah. Um, before the show, I met the lady next to me, and for some reason, uh, we started talking about a topic that may not be of concern to people in the audience, some people in the audience, till the 2060 or 2070 plan, and, and that is senior housing and um, specifically sort of senior-specific uh, multifamily housing. Uh, there are large swaths of the city that lack it, either at the market rate or even uh, with public housing. And I'm wondering what the comp plan says about trying to fill in some of those gaps. That's a great question. And hey, Peggy. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of the folks in my ward, I just want to emphasize the 80% of people who are renters in my ward are of all ages, including many seniors who've lived in the community for decades. And it's really scary for people to look around at the community they've known for so long and not know what their options are going to be looking forward to 2019, much less 2070. You know, the city has long talked about senior housing, but there hasn't really been like a real strong action related to getting it built. And I think you're right. That needs to change. I mean, there's the same kinds of statements in the comp plan, but like everything else, it will take us really being proactive and making it happen. There is a proposal right now in my ward um, along East Calhoun Parkway for a senior project. Um, you know, but housing in general is faces a lot of opposition in communities. And so I think, one way that we can try to help build support is for these kind of um, demographic-specific projects. Um, That one, although it is still very controversial, I think the fact that it is designed to serve the senior population nearby, which is a huge need in the community, is helping. Um, So, yeah. And our next question was right here. I guess I would like to know what, how do you define affordable housing? I've read the plan, and nowhere in the plan does it define what affordable housing Mm -hmm. is. I've read other stories in the media recently about uh, certain projects which are called affordable housing, and they do provide, in this case, it's rentals. And I've actually done the math. 
And I've looked at uh, minimum wage workers today. I've looked at $15 an hour workers today. I've looked at $20 an hour workers today. And none of these people, after taxes, could afford any of these units. And they're all called affordable housing. So I'm confused. Can yeah. you help For sure. elucidate that? Absolutely. So I'm actually really glad that you mentioned the minimum wage because one of the reasons I was such a strong supporter and author of the $15 one fair minimum wage that we passed last term against all odds and enormous opposition from the business community and others in the community, the press, um, was because, right, you know, there's a there's a huge income problem when you look at housing. So and a huge racial component to the income problem in Minneapolis. So if you look at neighborhoods that are affordable to households over time, rents are increasing, but the real income of households of color in Minneapolis are dramatically dropping decade by decade. And so if we don't solve the income part, the wealth building part, the generational poverty that communities of color in Minneapolis have seen for decades, I agree that we're never going to solve the housing problem. The way that the city defines affordable housing is based on the regional definition of area median income. So um, for funding purposes, that's typically defined as 100% of area median income, 80%, 60%, 50%, or 30 When you get into the very lowest of income, something like 30% of area median income, you're talking about housing that is only viable if we're subsidizing not only the construction or purchase of a building, but the operations. Um, So the the day-to-day repairs that any building has in Minneapolis, any kind of operational expenses, and people's rents. There's just no way to operate a building, like to keep the lights on and the electricity coming without subsidy of not only the building itself, but the day-to-day operations. And anyone who provides housing can, can explain that better. So that is the, the very deepest levels of income take not only capital money, but operating money over many years, over the lifetime of the, of the building. But we also have, in Minneapolis, apartment buildings, apartment units that are affordable at the same level that we're spending millions of dollars to construct that you can rent in the market today. And those are a lot of the older buildings in my ward, for example. And that's rapidly changing. Our market has a lot of pressure on it. We don't have enough housing for people. Rents are rising very quickly. But when I talk to my colleagues around the country in cities where they're, like, they're in a crisis, that's what they tell me, is there was a moment in time, and we're getting close to the end of that moment, but you know we still have a chance here in Minneapolis, where if they had done more to preserve the housing that is available in the market at those lower rents, they could have turned a corner much more than you can when you've lost all of the affordability in your market and you're literally in a crisis. So that's why we're, we've put aside millions of dollars to help preserve affordable housing. It's not easy because we're in a strong market. So for example, the city just was part of a proposal to help finance the purchase of 200 units of affordable housing in Whittier, but we lost out to a market uh, buyer that offered $1,000 per unit more than the city um, financed deal could provide, and that was with a nonprofit partner. So we're trying to help finance the purchase of buildings to keep them affordable for the next couple of decades, but we just can't compete in the market um, against for-profit buyers. So we're doing more. We, we have a tax break program for 
owners of apartment buildings that are willing to keep their units at a lower rent. Uh, we're trying a lot of different strategies, but at the end of the day, we also, um, you know, we need more housing because we do not have enough homes for the people who want to live in our city. And I will, I would be remiss to not also just say that that's a piece of the overall puzzle. And if we don't build new housing for people who are moving in, they're displacing my residents, including the seniors who've lived in the community for decades, um, from homes that they've known for a long time. Uh, another question somewhere in the back. Yes. Uh, hi, I live in North Minneapolis and um, in, in the Paul Wall neighborhood, and one of my neighbors tried to get um, stop signs put in by the city. And first it was speed bumps, and then it was stop signs. Uh, and we were told that the residents of the neighborhood would have, would have to actually pay for the stop signs or the speed bumps to get put in. And I'm not sure how she actually did it, but we have a, one set of stop signs to slow people down, and people are actually, I guess, stopping, um, which is cool. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, what can residents do rather than paying thousands of dollars for a stop sign at each corner um, yeah. to make sure that traffic isn't driving you know, super fast, if that makes sense? Yes. Thank you for the question. It's, it's really glamorous being a city council member because most of the time you're talking about things like stop signs. It's really true. Stop signs and parking. It's the bread and butter of our day because it affects people's lives. Like, do you feel safe on your street? It's a big deal. Um, so speed bumps are paid for by an assessment on the property taxes of the property owners along a street. And so you do need to get 70% of the property owners to agree to pay for speed bumps on your block for better or for worse. That's how the city does it for stop signs. The city will send out someone to do a study to see the average speed and to like look at the intersection and see if they put a stop sign in, will it actually stop drivers or will people run the stop sign or will it cause unintended consequences on the streets around it? Um, and so, and frankly, a stop sign isn't always the best solution. Like you said, like people might be just kind of like driving really fast on the block and then slamming on their brakes or whatever. So um, overall, I think the solution is that we don't want cut through traffic on our neighborhood streets. We want to keep traffic on the freeway system, on the arterials. Um, I think there are better ways that we could, you know, time traffic signals and to make it so that people are less likely to want to cut through neighborhood streets in their cars. And at the end of the day, that's where I think the solution really comes more than trying to like, put in stop signs everywhere. I, th I think speed bumps do work, but they have pros and cons too. Yeah. Any other questions in the back before I start walking slowly towards the front? It's going to be all front questions from now on. Sorry. Oh, back. It's just the Come way it's going to be. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, will there be any provision in the, uh, I don't have to worry about it, I'm too old, but will there be any provision to uh, make transit a little easier by, for example, having an ongoing program to keep the bus stops clear of snow yeah. in the winter because that doesn't happen now. That's a great question. Thank you for asking me because it's one of the things I meant to say earlier. So I actually, one of the biggest moves I want to make in this comprehensive plan is to make it really clear that we're going to invest infrastructure dollars in neighborhoods that are already dense and quickly growing and in, especially in including transit. And I think the city of Minneapolis should consider joining some of the cities around the country that are investing local city dollars in subsidizing transit operations. So, thank you. 
Right now, the city of San Francisco and the city of Seattle do that, and they're the only two transit systems in the country that are growing ridership, while all of the rest of us are losing riders. And it's because... I mean, if you make it really easy and relatively inexpensive to drive and you make it really inconvenient and practically impossible to even get on the bus in the winter, people, anyone who has any chance to, to drive instead is going to choose that option um, over and over and over again. And so if we are going to continue to grow along transit corridors, which is what this comprehensive plan says. So it does say you could have, a f you know, there might be a few duplexes and triplexes in neighborhoods that don't have them now. But the big, you know, the vast majority of growth is still going to be along transit corridors, along the Lindell Avenue corridor, maybe along the Central Avenue corridor if the market gets there, but, you know, in the places that are already growing now. And if we don't invest in transit and walking and biking, we're just creating congested neighborhoods. Right. And that's already that's basically what's happening now. We've added thousands of more units to Ward 10 and really no increase in transit service. So I've been pushing to create bus only lanes on Hennepin Avenue and Lindale Avenue on Lake Street on Nicolette Avenue. We should do better on transit. You know, if we're going to concentrate growth near transit, we need to make sure that the transit system is working well. And frankly, the political calculation that the city has been making, which is to kind of try to like get a little bit, if we can, out of the Metropolitan Council, our regional government, or the state legislature, isn't working. They're not investing in local transit service. So I think the city should step up and, and take the risk of doing more to subsidize local transit operations. We are taking on more and more. We're taking on more on housing. We're taking on more on, on everything as our, the other levels of government sort of walk away from urban areas. But this is one where I think if we're going to continue to grow, we need to harness that growth and invest it in transit. All right. We have time for a couple more questions. I'm giving you another chance back. All right. Going to the front. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. Um, so we talked earlier about the idea or sort of the fear that people were worried about their homes being bulldozed and, the, and you know, putting up multifamily units, but when in fact you said more often it's single-family homes. In, in that sort of circumstance, can you talk a little bit about the circumstance that would allow someone's home to be bulldozed? I guess like what I'm, I'm sort of wondering is most of the houses I'm seeing those kinds of signs are um, at our single-family owned houses. And so I'm having trouble sort of envisioning what the fear even is such that they wouldn't have control over their own home. After. Is it foreclosure? Is it something else that I'm missing? And then I guess the flip side of that is, were that to happen, how, what would it be to keep that, those multi-units affordable? Like, what does that actually yeah. look like? Because right now in South Minneapolis, I don't think someone from North Minneapolis on a 50, or anyone mm -hmm. on a $15 minimum wage would be able to afford even the lower rents in that particular neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Great questions. So on the first one, yes, you can tear down your home today. I mean, you need to go through the process of getting a building permit from the city. We've added some layers of construction code. Um, so you have to sign an agreement that says you'll deconstruct your property in a certain way and have a garbage container outside because when all of the um, teardowns were happening in Ward 13 a few years ago, there were a lot of site issues. So there were like drainage problems and there were a lot of impacts on neighbors. So the city, at the same time that we made it harder, we made it, we made it so that the new single family homes that are being built are smaller in footprint. 
we closed some loopholes that people were using to make their homes much bigger than was intended to be allowed. And we added some specific things about how you had to manage the construction of a site. Um, so people are paying a lot of mo- what I would consider a lot of money to buy single family homes, tear them down and build new single family homes. I mean, much larger than the average sale, pr- like a much higher amount than the average sale price of a home in most Minneapolis neighborhoods, even for the sale price, not even mentioning the cost of rebuilding the new home. So I think you're right that this is why I tried to be so careful about saying what I did about race equity and access to housing earlier no one is suggesting that allowing for duplexes or triplexes in in some of the most expensive neighborhoods in the city is really a solution to our affordable housing problems. But it is one way to create more housing opportunities in every neighborhood of the city. So you might imagine a senior who's going to sell their single-family home for a lot of money, so it can be torn down and a new house can be built, being able to move into a duplex in the same neighborhood that they've lived in for a really long time. You might imagine a single parent being able to rent a unit in a neighborhood that has really good schools that are really invested in. Um, I don't mean to characterize schools as good or bad, but very heavily invested in schools, right? Um, So I think it's just one of many, many ways to create a small amount of opportunity in neighborhoods that have a lot of resources and a lot of access. Um, But the real place where we're growing, again, is is a long transit corridor, is close to in downtown. Last term, over 90% of new housing was built downtown in Ward 3. We've added thousands and thousands of new people downtown and in the third ward just across the river from downtown and those are the places where we really need to make sure that infrastructure investments are keeping up with those, that dramatic increase in population. Uh, and so that's where I see in this new plan we can really rectify the fact that we've been growing very quickly in parts of the city where we don't have the kinds of infrastructure and transportation investments that you really need to sustain and, and um, support that growth in a way that meets all the goals of being sustainable and accessible. Um, I'm also authoring this ordinance that would mandate that we have affordable housing in every new market rate apartment project. So that's, again, more in the bigger projects that are across the city. Um, So I think the fear is that people will sell their homes in sort of large swaths and, and that a developer will come in and build something that's really different from the neighborhood that's there now. And that will not be allowed. It's, it says in the plan now that lot combinations won't be allowed in the interior one neighborhoods, um, which are where largely the single-family neighborhoods are today. We have to codify that. We have to put the rules in place that make that so and so council member schrader and i are getting started on that um so part of it is the kind of dance between the land use regulations and the comp plan and the zoning code and all the other ways that we implement the plan yeah so i'm sorry uh we are out of time for questions uh but fortunately uh lisa told me before the show that she cleared her entire evening (laughs) to take questions after this show so for the next four hours no i'm kidding i'm kidding Please uh, give a wonderful round of applause for Lisa Bender. Thank you for listening. 
This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.